I was asked to see if you guys know who the picture on the right is of. It's about, we started doing videos in Grand Rapids School of Theology in about 1991 and 1992. Now, I don't know the exact date of that picture, but that's about when that was. It's just a screen capture. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, it says, And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to instruct others also. I'm going to pray and then uh, tell you a story. I think I'll be able to get your interest in this. Holy Father, I always need your help. To say anything of edification, we need you to guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, by a show of hands, who in here has heard of a book called The Sovereignty of God by A.W. Pink? Of all of the biographical sketches that I have ever taught, the one on Pink is the most interesting and most downloaded, and that was 2009 in Holland, Michigan. But today I want to tell you the rest of the story. I was doing this research a little over a year ago, and you see an arrow pointing to a man in a coal trader's journal from 1911, and this man's name is Erwin Charles Herendine. And he had been married in 1906, and he got a job with the family, and it wasn't working out so well, so he tried a number of different things. By 1911, he was in Rochester, New York, selling coal, and he had been married in 1906, And that's uh, probably one of the last pictures of him taken in this life. He lived just short of 100 years old. And what had happened was he met an 80-year-old man, him and his wife, named Mr. Coles, who ran a place called the Bible Truth Depot at the time in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, And they had some good fellowship at supper, but it was apparent that this 80-year-old man was looking to pass on his ministry there called the Bible Truth Depot onto a younger man. And through the conversation, a third party that was sitting in on their conversation saw that I see here indeed seemed to have such an interest in this ministry. So... The other man said, well, I think I have your guy here. And Irwin, as his name is, admitted that he was very, very interested. So they got down to Williamsport later, but it was obvious that the ministry needed to move. It was at the back of the lot of the 80-year-old's family member. And they found a place in Swingle, Pennsylvania, and they set up shop there. They found a lot to put the Bible publishing, track publishing ministry there. And eventually, him and his wife moved down and they took it over. They bought their house for $600. Before his wife and the two kids came down, they had two young children. They had to, uh, you know, be able to set up a bathroom even in those days, but they got the place that was comfortable in Swingle, Pennsylvania, was very attractive to them. And so in about the year 1916, they took over the business completely. The 80-year-old man had helped them out for a while. And Herendine says that he was taking a magazine called Our Hope Magazine, and the editor Many of you may not know this name. I have because uh, he was very prominent in fundamentalist Baptist circles for almost a hundred years in America, not so much in England. There was really no Calvinistic Baptist churches. The 
churches were either fundamental Baptists or they were modernists. So he was publishing tracts for the Billy Sunday crusade and another man named Gypsy Smith. And they did this all by faith. The Lord provided the funds as needed. And the more I learned about this, the more I realized that this was what Chapel Library was in Venice, Florida when they started in 1963. They not only did tracts, and there was such a demand for them, but he offered to lend out books if anybody wanted to borrow them through an interlibrary loan. And more and more people wanted their own copy of the books. And in those days, there were only really two publishers, three, if you include Moody out of Chicago, but Lazo Brothers in New York and another publisher. So more and more, he started publishing books. And he had this magazine, and he's reading through it, and he comes across an article on spiritualism by a man named A.W. Pink. And it catches his eye because he says, this is a different kind of a writing compared to most of the stuff in this magazine. He was pretty impressed. And because he had dealt with people who were into spiritualism, and if you know anything about the life of A.W. Pink before he was converted, for five years he was in theosophy and spiritualism. So Herondine said, I'm going to take this chapter on spiritualism, I'm going to make it into a Bible track, and he had it published. He had the publishing means there, and he doesn't know exactly how many that he had published, but he makes a trip up New York City, New Jersey, and a number of areas for two weeks, and he gets home, and there is a letter in the mail from A.W. Pink, who at this time is in Kentucky. In fact, Pink pastored two churches at a time here in Kentucky, and three in all. So that's a picture of Herondine on the left, and two of his children, Vera Pink, Arthur Pink's wife, and A.W. Pink on the right. And I don't know if you're aware of anything about Pink's private life, but Vera is actually from Bowling Green, Kentucky. And that was quite an adjustment for them because this is a country girl raised on a farm, and she was trying to learn to cook for a person whose diet was really really strict, and she had to learn a lot. And, and I'll admit right up front that there is a book out called Marriage to a Difficult Man by Elizabeth Dodds about Jonathan Edwards, and I'm pretty sure that there needed to be a book about being married to this guy as well. Uh, there's a reason probably that they never had any children, and I wasn't quite able to figure out why, but... Um, Herondine, in a letter I found yesterday that I hadn't read, it was in my possession, uh, said that it's probably better they didn't have any children because he was pretty strict and sometimes a little bit tough to get along with. So he gets this note from Pink and he writes to him and he finds that they have all of this stuff in common. And Pink is here in Kentucky and he asks, Herondine, do you know of any churches looking for a pastor? And he was a Baptist. And Herondine didn't know, but eventually A.W. Pink found a pastorate in Spartanburg, South Carolina, outside of Greenville. And by this time, their friendship is really, really strong. They have a lot in common. In fact, uh, Richard Belcher had published these letters. This whole thing is the letters between Pink and Herondine, 1917, 18, and 19, about the time that he published the book, The Sovereignty of God, for Arthur Pink. So as they became friends, uh, and he realized that he was not that far away in Spartanburg now compared to Kentucky, Herondine went on a trip because he had many, many people that he knew through the Bible Truth Depot and publishing these tracts and so on, and he took a train down to Spartanburg and you can imagine how they had to communicate so they didn't know what one another looked like. This is where we're going to meet and so on. So Herondine spent 10 days with A.W. Pink and then went further south 
to meet some of his friends in Georgia, and he came back and he stayed with A.W. Pink for a little while longer. And Pink had already asked him to publish two of his first works. Uh, the Divine Inspiration of the Scriptures, and Why Four Gospels. And Pink is having this conversation with Herendine, and he says, they called each other Brother Herendine, Brother Pink, or Mr. Pink. And he says, Brother Herendine, this is 1917, I want to write a book called The Sovereignty of God. And Herendine is completely taken off guard by this because he had no idea what the sovereignty of God was. So as Herendine was staying there a little while longer, Pink began to teach him about God's sovereignty, and Herendine had no rejection whatsoever. It was new to him, and he was so surprised by it. And then the idea that God from the foundation of the world had chosen Erwin Charles Herendine to be one of his own really made an impression on him. So Herendine went back up to Swingle, Pennsylvania, and they continued these correspondences, and Pink would publish one chapter of the sovereignty of God at a time, and Herendine would read it, and Pink would be writing to him, and he expounded for him John six forty four, And Herendine had been reading his Bible, but it never hit him then or it hit him then like it never had before, and that is, no man can come to me. And Herendine said it greatly affected him, and he was beginning to understand total depravity and the need for effectual grace to save him. And so one chapter at a time would come to Herendine, and he'd be reading these chapters of the sovereignty of God, and he was... So enlightened, but remember, you had so many independent fundamental Baptists around in those days. And he published initially 2,000 copies of the Sovereignty of God for Pink. And by the end of the run, he had to give them away. There just wasn't much interest in it, and nobody had heard of a man named Pink which I think is ironic because God used this guy so early on in the days of Gypsy Smith and Billy Sunday and superficial evangelism. And remember, this is the same year, if you think back to last week, that Harry Emerson Fosdick preached his infamous sermon, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? So God was preparing this man for this ministry, and there's no way he would have ever known the usefulness that he enjoyed as an author. Well, now the story changes from Herendine to his influence on the Reformed Baptist churches in the 1950s and the 1960s. Herendine was in Swingle, Pennsylvania, and he was learning through Pink all these wonderful truths. And by 1922, they had started this magazine, and it started off slowly. But by the 19, late 40s and early 50s, Herendine was looking for a Baptist church in the area, and the closest one was the ministry of a man named John Riesinger. And John and <laughs> Ernest Riesinger are brothers, but... It's a very interesting story in this respect. If you know anything about John, you may have heard of Ernest, but those of us who were Reformed Baptists for over 30 years knew about John as well because this was, he received the doctrines of grace as taught through Herendine. Herendine had an influence on him, and he began to share these things with his brother Ernest, and both of them slowly became Calvinist Baptists, and Grace Baptist Church in Carlisle, Pennsylvania had already started. So this is uh, Grace Baptist Church started in 51, and Ernest and some of these people are being affected by the ministry of the materials of Herendine, and at the same time as Ernest is learning these things, 
They're also finding about, out about Westminster Theological Seminary. In 1953, Puritan publications started, and that man was Jay Green. In 1955, the Manner of Truth publications started. And it was interesting because Ernest and John were never on the same page. John was the beginning of what we now call New Covenant Theology and very much an anti-Sabbatarian. And it did cause some friction between these two, but they just they stopped talking about it. Ernest was starting to, as he read the Puritans, embrace covenant theology within a Baptist context. So he wrote, Ernest did, to Ian Murray. By that time, they had heard of the Banner of Truth Trust, and it was an interesting letter because he's explaining to Ian Murray We are a group of Baptists that are almost Presbyterian. Is there any counsel, is there any advice that you could give us on this? And if you think about it, in 1960, uh, Ian Murray was only all of 30 years old. He's 91 this year. He was born in 1931. So you have this young man already who had sat at the feet of Lloyd-Jones. Lloyd-Jones had put the impetus upon him to start a publishing ministry, and Ian Murray is counseling the very first Reformed Baptist at Grace Baptist Church in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Keep losing my stuff. I'm not used to using notes, but I was finding it kind of hard to go with a Kindle. So Ian Murray was beginning to have an influence on the church. Now, at the same time, a young student from Westminster Theological Seminary started to attend Grace Baptist Church in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and that was Walter Chantry. And he, the very first time he started taking classes at Westminster Theological Seminary, met another student from England, and they became instant friends because Calvinist Baptists was so rare, and especially rare at Westminster Theological Seminary, and that student was Jeffrey Thomas from Wells. And so as Grace Baptist Church was going along, and they had some different pastors by 19, early 1960s, they called Walt Chantry to be the pastor So the young Ernest Riesinger, because of his bold witness, compassion for the loss and passion for the strengthening new believers in the faith, was urged to be a part of the founding new church in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, which would eventually become Grace Baptist Church. Through the influence of I.C. Herendine, a seller of Christian books, through his Bible Truth Depot in Swingle, Pennsylvania, The doctrines of grace became known and loved by the newly formed congregation, and by 1959, Grace Baptist Church had adopted the 1689 London Baptist Confession. In a testimony that Walt Chantry gave to Scott Leone, my consciousness of being both Baptist and Reform was clarified during my college years at that time and until 1967, We knew only a few others who were Calvinistic Baptists. And ironically, it was in 1963 that they became aware of Albert Martin. And where that's interesting, between 1962 and 1967, Albert Martin was a pastor of an Alliance church, North Caldwell Alliance Church in Caldwell, New Jersey. He wasn't quite a Reformed Baptist yet. He didn't know a lot about these things. In fact, it was Ernest Riesinger who became friends with Al Martin from what he heard of some of his ministry, and they became good friends, but Pastor Martin was holding back on the doctrine of particular redemption, limited atonement, and he didn't want to talk to Ernest Riesinger about it. He, his guard was up, and Ernest wasn't going to make ways. He just gave him a copy of the book Redemption Accomplished and Applied by John Murray. 
So about 1966 or so, uh, Pastor Martin reads this book, Redemption and Accomplished and Applied by John Murray, and that just sealed it for him. And Al Martin and his wife and Ernest Riesinger and his wife were walking together, and Pastor Martin's wife, Marilyn, went up to Ernest Riesinger and whispered in his ear, uh, he would be glad to talk to you now about particular redemption. So he had his conscience, and it's amazing how John Murray, the professor of theology at Westminster Seminary, and Al Martin became good friends about the year 1967, and in 67, Pastor Martin put in his resignation at North Caldwell Alliance Church. He had a church offering him ministry up by Philadelphia, which would put him in closer contact with Westminster Theological Seminary because he was getting a name for himself because, in fact, you can find him online. His early sermons as a Caldwell, North Caldwell Alliance preacher on the Sermon on the Mount going all the way back to 1963 were like almost nothing you would hear in those days. They were so powerful. And as a young Reformed Baptist myself, I had listened to those, and I was following the timeline of this. It was intriguing to me because I never discovered Albert Martin until 1984 when I had orders in the Coast Guard to go to New York City. And somebody had these early cassettes of him preaching on the Sermon on the Mount. And I noticed that when he preached on beware of the poor in spirit, he made a reference to then-President John F. Kennedy. And at the time, he was referring to him as Jack Kennedy. And then when I got to the tape, 1963, in November, I believe it was, when he preached on Blessed Are They That Mourn, this really caught my ear. He said, I want you to understand in this congregation that the mourning that this beatitude is talking about is not the mourning that's going on in this country because John F. Kennedy had just been assassinated that Friday, and this was Sunday. Well, John Murray was really impressed with Albert Martin as a speaker, and they had this conference going on in England called the Leicestershire Conference, Leicestershire. And Ian Murray wrote a letter to John Murray to ask him to take three sessions of this conference and preach for us. Ian Murray didn't yet know who Albert Martin was, and John Murray wrote back to him, knowing that Albert Martin was going to come there. He had been invited, and Pastor Martin, as a young pastor, wanted to take this in. And so John Murray, because he was friends with Albert Martin, asked Ian Murray if Albert Martin could take his place at this conference in England and John Murray said, I've been listening to preachers for 60 years. He said, I have never heard anything like Albert Martin back in 1967. And since I've listened to so many of those tapes, I understand what he was talking about. Well, as I was Pastor Martin's uh, computer tutor, I was in his office a lot. And I knew what books were so important to him. And there was this wall counter, went the length of the wall with some of the most important books in his library. And right up where, because I, I would take his seat at the computer, if I was doing something for him, he would go sit to the side and I would take a seat. So I knew every single book along that wall. And right there to the left of me was always redemption accomplished and applied. And just uh, a few years ago, it would have been 2015, when Banner of Truth was celebrating their 60th anniversary as a publishing company, there was a festgrift written for Ian Murray, and the people that wrote their contribution would take one Banner of Truth book 
that was so influential for them. And I was so close to Pastor Martin, and in those days he handed me this script before it was handed in, and he begged that he could write on redemption, accomplish, and, and apply it. John Murray had such an influence on the early Reformed Baptists and their teaching. In about 1977, there were plans for an academy to begin to prepare men for the ministry. If you look to the far left, as you're looking at the picture, that's a young picture of Greg Nichols, saved out of the hippie movement in the early 1970s, the Jesus movement, and Nichols, our former pastor, of course, became such a prominent part of Trinity Ministerial Academy, Dr. Waldron's below him, and to Waldron's left, or our right as we look at Alan Dunn, who came in later, Albert Martin, who's sitting at his desk in the right-hand corner, Mark Sarver, these were just some of the early professors at Trinity Ministerial Academy, which lasted about 20 years. And it was always interesting to me because I was attending Trinity Baptist Church and I became very, very close to <coughs> so many of the students who had went to those, the academy in those early years especially the students around the year 1986 and 1987, because I got out of the Coast Guard. I attended Trinity Baptist Church a year and a half. And I got out of the United States Coast Guard and went back to what was then, it wasn't really my hometown, but my parents were there, uh, Helena, Montana. And, uh, you know, I kept uh, track of all of what was being preached at Trinity. Well, as I was looking through the uh, yellow pages as I was visiting my grandmother who lived south of Missoula, I realized there is a Reformed Baptist church south uh, in uh, Missoula, Montana, and the pastor had took a pastorate in Sacramento, California, so the remaining pastor supplied the pulpit by flying out students from Trinity Ministerial Academy and I was single in those days, and I tried to make a point as often as I could to have them in my home there in Missoula, Montana. And so I would ask these guys continually, what are the required books that you read at Trinity Ministerial Academy? And I learned the names of the books, and many of them I would get myself. For example, Principles of Conduct, which was used in their ethics class, which when I got to Grand Rapids in December of 88, shortly after that, the Grand Rapids School of Theology was started up, and so Pastor Waldron started teaching in Grand Rapids with Greg Nichols, who came in 1992, and I knew the books that were so important in those days. And uh, Pastor Waldron also taught an ethics class in Grand Rapids. It was a separate class uh, from the one where it is now combined. So for years, I kept track of all of the textbooks that were used in our ministerial training, and I was well aware of the indebtedness that we had to the professors at Westminster Theological Seminary. And I'll just mention some of those. And these, many of these were in the first generation as well at Westminster. Of course, John Murray. Murray started at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia the second year. The first year, there was this pastor from Grand Rapids named R.B. Kuyper. And Kuyper was there the first year, and he only gave him a first-year commitment. And then they brought in this young Scottish theologian, and Murray just had a reputation for godliness. And Murray came in and was so an essential part of Trinity Ministerial Academy in the day, and he still is and Edward J. Young, who's written commentaries on Isaiah and Genesis 1 to 3. 
Cornelius Van Til. They used Machen's work. Machen had a book for studying Greek. That was a standard work at Trinity Ministerial Academy. And in my mind, I was always interested why did Westminster Theological Seminary have such a strong impression in part of our early ministerial training well, remember when Trinity Ministerial Academy would have started up if I said it was like 1997, they were still very, very close to Grace Baptist Church in Carlisle, so Walter Chantry also would have had a say in how this was going to be done because they hadn't even decided where to do the training, and it was settled on Montville, New Jersey, and what was interesting about that was because Walter Chantry himself had West, went to Westminster Theological Seminary for three years, and another man who was a professor and at a time an elder in Trinity Baptist Church, Robert Fisher, was also teaching there. And so early Reformed Baptist ministry was so indebted to people like John Murray and Cornelius Van Til. And so, as a, I, I've never, uh, I, I've aspired to the ministry, I've never uh, actually joined the seminary, or I've always taken classes, because they've always been free in Grand Rapids, they are here too, I would sit in on them. So I've had so many of the classes but I was never actually a student, but I was so well knowledgeable about the influence of Westminster Theological Seminary upon our early training that I became very much on my own, as best as I could, a student of Cornelius Van Til and what was called presuppositional apologetics. And so, for the second time this week, I was reading the official biography of Van Til by William White. And I'm interested in Van Til for a couple of reasons. One is, being from Grand Rapids, there's such a Reformed history. And I was able to meet so many people that many of you would have heard of. In fact, as a letter carrier, I remember one day I was driving up to a mailbox and I looked at, I, I had five routes at the time. It's called a swing route. You did somebody's route on their day off, five different routes. And I'm pulling up to this mailbox and I'm looking at the letter and it says, Louis Burkhoff. And this 70-year-old guy, that's just a guess, came out to me, and I just threw this out there. I said, what relation are you to Louis Burkhoff, the theologian who put out a systematic theology that used to be very, very much used in uh, Trinity Ministerial Academy? He says, I'm his grandson. And I told him what an influence his grandfather had on us Reformed Baptists, but the sad thing about Grand Rapids is that by the third generation, so many of these Christian Reformed people were Christians in name only, that Grand Rapids was really going through a change in the last few years I was there. It's an amazing history, if you consider that one of my routes was on Eastern Avenue. It was called Eastern Avenue Christian Reformed Church. And right across from there was Kriegel's used bookstore. So I spent all of my lunches in this bookstore, and they had approximately 10,000 books for sale. And I'd seen, I'd seen all of them. I spent so much time in these bookstores that anything new that was coming into Kriegel Bookstore, I wanted to know what it was. Uh, you know, uh, I had found books, or the oldest book I even saw there was a book by John Boys from the year 1615. John Boys is one of the translators of the King James Bible, and this was the first edition. So I'd found some really good books there, but that whole block had such an interesting history because 
at the Eastern Avenue Christian Reformed Church across the street, in the year 1924, there was a young Christian Reformed pastor named Herman Hoeksema. And I knew Hoeksema because he was very well known in the Protestant Reformed circles as a founder. But I didn't know the story, and the Protestant Reformed churches in Grand Rapids departed from the Christian Reformed churches in such areas as common grace and the free offer of the gospel. So here's this church across the street that I'm delivering the mail to, and I learned that the history of this was that in 1924, Herman Hoeksema showed up at this church, and there was a padlock on the door, and it was a Christian Reformed Church's way of saying you're fired because of these three differences on common grace and so on. Well, Herman Hoeksema by that time had an assembly of people like Albert Martin did back in 1967. Martin turned in his resignation and the people weren't going to have it. 60 out of 62 people said, no, you can't resign here. We want you to be our pastor, and that's where Trinity Baptist Church was started. Well, in 1924, all of these people followed their pastor out, and it became known as the Protestant Reformed Denomination, which really, really has spread since 1924. And it's amazing to me, because these people don't believe in the free offer of the gospel, and they don't really evangelize because of their high Calvinism, they believe pretty much the only way you become a Christian is through the covenant nurturing model within the Protestant Reformed churches, and these churches just have big families, and their children are assumed to be Christian, and yet they're so big in Grand Rapids. So, but I'm the letter carrier for this route, and Betty and I are pretty much newly married, and by this time, this is a pretty rough part of town, but it has a rich history. And so two blocks down is called the First Christian Reformed Church in Grand Rapids. And I'm reading the life of Van Til, and I realize in 1926, he had graduated from Princeton Theological Seminary. And he was offered a pastorate in the First Christian Reformed Church in Grand Rapids, which to him in 1926 was just too big of a charge. So he took this pastorate out at Spring Lake. And I'm sure Char may remember this. There is a bridge between Granville and Spring Lake, where you're crossing the Grand River to get from Granville to Spring Lake, that bridge isn't that old. It actually is a little bit newer. So when Van Til was at Spring Lake, if you were from Granville, not Granville, Grand Haven, Michigan, excuse me, and you wanted to come to church, you had to row across on a boat. But here he was, finally, graduated from Princeton Theological Seminary, so happy he gets his dream ideal pastorate, and that is in a little rural Christian Reformed church in Michigan. He's newly married, his wife's name, Renee, Rena, excuse me, and she had was with him when he was finishing up his studies at Princeton Theological Seminary, and they were so happy to get back to rural Michigan. But something happened to Cornelius Van Til in his last couple of years, sitting under the great professors at Princeton Theological Seminary. His professor of apologetics was a man named William Brenton Green. And they had used the same classical apologetics method for many years going back through Warfield. And Van Til, this is a brilliant young man. In fact, the Dutch theologians, it was assumed when they were coming to Princeton's theological seminary, they were going to be a cut above most of the students. These were brilliant philosophers and so on. One of them very much influential on Van Til and also a Grand Rapids man for some time, and that was Gerhardus Voss. 
But Van Til is sitting here in these classes listening to this apologetic methodology. And in his heart of hearts, he says, this is not right. But he was, he was a humble Dutch man, and he said, look, I, I, I'm not going to speak out here. And he was kind of appalled by the followers of J. Gresham Machen because they became a little bit too much filled with rhetoric and a little bit of carnal attitude in how they were defending Machen. And Van Til was a godly young man, and he knew that this couldn't be right, even though he was very much a Machen warrior himself. And he received a lot of flack at Princeton Theological Seminary for this from these young men who were kind of fundamentalists themselves in their approach to teaching. So they were so happy they got back to Michigan. But he had already made an impression on the professors there at Princeton. And Princeton in 1929 just had to fold. It was becoming so full of modernism. So they formed Westminster Theological Seminary in 1929. And Machen, who lived to 1937, begged two of these professors go to Grand Rapids and persuade Cornelius Van Til to come here and teach at Westminster Theological Seminary. And they did. They, they knew they couldn't just write. It wasn't going to carry the desired effect. And they showed up and they pleaded with him to come. And he was just dead said, I don't want to go to Philadelphia. I'm so happy I have the pastoral charge that I've wanted. They had a baby on the way. They were so settled. And his wife could see, however, he was really in turmoil inside. Because he knew that he was such a gifted man when it came to Christian philosophy. And by then, they, he had written these papers at Princeton Theological Seminary that was impressing the professors so much. And so Van Til was wrestling inside, and this biography doesn't explain exactly what changed his mind. It just says that he wrote him a letter, and he said, I'm coming back to Westminster Theological Seminary. Well, this was really a sacrifice, because you take this young Dutch lady who loved being by Lake Michigan. It's beautiful out there. And she knows they're going back to Philadelphia, but she knows that there's such a calling upon her husband. And they get this house in Philadelphia, and she's very lonely. He has to be at the seminary writing out his class notes and so on. And she's in this small house in Philadelphia, which she has no affection for, and she's fighting the, off these black ants that are taking over the kitchen. But she was a trooper. Um, these are good ladies, good, dedicated Christian wives. And we're the better for this. But I want to leave this before I open this up for any questions. It's interesting to me that Van Til sitting under the best of the Princeton apologists and he's inside realizing that this apologetic methodology, now called classical apologetics, is approaching unconverted man on neutral ground. Instead of seeing the antithesis that there is between the regenerate mind and a mind that has been affected by the fall, and so he is writing out his own apologetic method. He's been influenced by Abraham Kuyper. He's been influenced by R.B. Kuyper. He's been influenced by Gerhardus Voss, and he knows what Romans 1 says, <coughs> excuse me, about 
that we are to realize that the Bible is God-breathed and we are not going to use classical apologetics to show that there might be a God, possibly is a God, but that they know that there is a God and they're suppressing this in unrighteousness. And I'm putting an emphasis here, and I'm not, admittedly, though I've listened to so many lectures, not just from Van Til, but Greg Bonson and others who were his students. And I'll admit, Van Til's a lot smarter than I. There's a lot of things he wrote that I can't follow. But I can get the basic gist of this. So I will leave you with this. In our day at large, there are a number of Reformed Baptist theologues who believe that the Princeton theologians Warfield, William Brenton Green were right in Van Til and his presuppositional apologetic method was wrong and they're putting pressure on us as a church and as a seminary to listen more and more to what they have to say. And I am not in the seminary. I have so much respect for my pastor as president. But as for me, I don't even listen to some of the things that they have to say because I'm like an old independent Baptist fundamentalist. I've already determined that this is the word of God And God speaks through his word and is self-authenticating and self-attesting. And if you want to call me that, I am full to the bottom of Antillian apologist. And with that, if anybody wants to add anything before I close, go ahead, Pastor Ben. Not that I'm aware of. He had some connection with, at least verbally, with a Westminster Chapel in London, England. Uh, uh, Lloyd-Jones was familiar with Pink. Pink was familiar with Lloyd-Jones. But I don't find much in Pink where he is quoting anybody out of Westminster Seminary. I think he was limited And what was in his library, he, of course, was such a student of the Puritans and so on. But as anybody knows about the ministry of Pink, he suffered from not having the give and take that you would have of having fellow pastors. He was so chagrined by the end of his ministry, him and his wife went out to the New Hebrides, and he became somewhat of an isolationist. And it's an interesting story to find out what happened with his wife after 1952 when A.W. Pink passed away that she lived 10 years and two days after Pink and she became a little bit more throwing the doors open and meeting the neighbors where she had been so secluded because of him. And so people got to know Vera a little bit, and she had all of the copyrights to all of Pink's works, and she gave them full-heartedly over to Herondine, and he would go to Erdman's and Baker and these other publishing companies trying to get this stuff published. And the copyright wasn't held really tightly, and that's a good thing because Pink would not have enjoyed the popularity that he has in our day if the copyright was strictly enforced. But Pink is an anomaly, and I have two lessons on Pink on Sermon Audio, and I call it what it is. He had such an isolationist character about him that he was forsaken the assembly of the saints. Anybody else? Go ahead, Blake. Do miracles for us, do miracles for us, do miracles for us. But then the next day, the 
crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. So he was a prolific speaker, but because he was such an isolationist, he's not um, invited to speak at other places. So, uh, regarding to that, my question would be is, what is your counsel then from studying the life and death of A.W. King? How would you counsel those that are young and that are aspiring to go to the ministry uh, to avoid the mistakes of A.W. There should be nobody aspiring to the ministry who is not willing to receive counsel from a multitude of brethren who should go into the ministry at all if the church is not attesting that they also believe as they assess his gifts, if they listen to his prayers and preaching, they would say that brother is called. And sometimes it's a surprise to the person who the church is recommending. It was with Jeremy Walker. Austin Walker's son did not believe he had a calling to the ministry, but the church saw such giftedness in the man and they kind of put the pressure on him, and what a gift we have as a result of that. Uh, anything Jeremiah, uh, Jeremy Walker does is very edifying. I'm uh, past time, so I'll close, and I thank you guys for your kind attention for the last three weeks. It means a lot to me. Holy Father, thank you for the legacy that you have given us. I look at my own life and my background and where I've come from, and I can't recall anything but six months of my life where I was reading things that weren't profitable and immediately as early as the end of 1981 you were directing me to these good writings and now I sit at the feet of such great teaching at a seminary level and I'm so humbled by that and May this, what we have learned as we look back at what happened with modernism and liberalism and what happened to the Presbyterian Church and the things that they had faced that may we be committed to the scriptures solely, firstly, and then our confession and realize that it is a great gift from good men that we have the pleasure of reading their works and benefiting from them. So we commit this to you in Jesus' name, amen.